I want to make this clear. It's not a small thing to leave a faith tradition. It is a huge decision because I owe so much, we both do, Mm -hmm. to the Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Britt Bowlerjack, and for the next few months, we're going to be interviewing millennial pastors who have transitioned out of the Church of the Nazarene. It is my hope and prayer that these stories will be um, the catalyst for beautiful conversations to come about who we are and where we're going and how we can better embody who God is calling us to be. You're not alone. You know, there are so, so, so many of us who are asking questions and trying to figure out what a wholehearted life uh, means. One of my first things is like, if you can stay, you should stay. But I would say if you're going to stay, you have to do the work. That's really all that matters at at the end of the day, because it's all about faithful ministry. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bowlerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Ben Kramer. Ben is the campus pastor at Cathedral of the Rockies in Boise, Idaho. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Britt. Thanks for coming. So I want to start at the beginning of your kind of ministry journey and ask you, how did you originally end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Sure. Uh, so I I actually came into the Church of the Nazarene when I was a senior in high school. My grandfather and great-grandfather were both Nazarene pastors, but for some reason, my family drifted away and, you know, found themselves uh, in some non-denominational movements along the way. Um, And through, through those church experiences, we got uh, pretty burned by the church, some Mm. spiritual manipulation and things like that happened. And and so my family actually wasn't attending church at all. Um, Mm. And I got invited to a a little Nazarene youth group in my hometown. And, and, uh, from, from then on, they had, a uh, an introduction to Northwest Nazarene university. And so mm. I got involved in the church, of the Nazarene that way. Oh, love that. Um, so tell me the kind of the story of your like call to ministry. Yeah. So, um, the, the little non-denominational movements that I was raised in were, were very fundamentalist. And then we, had some very evangelical pastors, but in those settings, as any church kid knows, the emphasis on finding your call was pretty huge, you know? And so I was thinking about that conversation. I gave my heart to the Lord when I was five and Mm. I felt this distinct call to ministry, specifically pastoral ministry when I was around seven. Mm. Um, And I just never, never lost it. You know, I was afraid of it for a while. When I got into uh, university, I thought, you know, I really want to help people. Maybe it's through nursing and actually started as a nursing major. (laughs) And then, then I got to like, looked over the course schedule that first freshman year and like, oh, there's a cadaver course. And I felt nauseous. And so I'm not (laughs) cut out to be... I'm not cut out to be a nurse. And so <laughs> more power to them, really. Wow, like, I love so much story. admiration to that. <laughs> so I then changed my my degree to what I felt like it was supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, the whole time after my first philosophy class, I just couldn't run away from it anymore. And so mm-hmm. I started really articulating that call, I think, very seriously in in college. Oh, I love that. Um, so kind of talk me through the ministry journey. Did you did you intern somewhere while you're in college? Yeah, so I interned at uh, there at NNU um, and uh, interned actually at the church where I was in youth group first. 
um, for a couple of years, but then midway through uh, my bachelor's, I started interning at, and I stayed there for the rest of my undergrad and my first mm-hmm. master's degree until I moved to, to Kansas City. Um, and it was, it was a great experience. I was in charge of uh, compassionate service um, ministries for the youth group. And so All I would right. coordinate with the city. Yeah, it was, it was a blast. We went and painted fences and cleaned up graffiti and swept up, you know, alleyways and stuff. And the mayor actually awarded us the bronze medal of community service. Uh, so that's amazing. Not anything <laughs> because of I did. I just made sure we kept the schedule, but like the youth group really showed up and they loved their community so well. So ah, that's yeah. so cool. Such a blast. Oh, I love that. Okay. So then from, from NNU, you end up at NTS. How did you end up at NTS? Yeah. So I, I knew that I wanted to continue my education, um, and through some, uh, really great conversations with the faculty at NNU. Um, they really always spoke highly of the seminary, and I had literally never lived anywhere but Nampa, Idaho, like my whole life. And so, wow. m- as a Nampa homeschooled kid, like I just didn't. I had this, you know, fear of leaving home, like going to Aww. college and in class with other people that aren't my siblings <laughs> was a huge step, right? Uh, and so, like. <laughs> Like I, I was telling Rebecca, my wife, this the other day, like there's no way for anyone who was like public school to understand how jarring it is to hear all of these papers on books being turned at the same time. I'm just like this cacophony of noise in the classroom for the very first time. I'm like, what? And I'm there in my little tie and my collared shirt and everybody's in their pajamas. Like they've been doing this, you know, all of high school. And so it was, it was a huge kind of rattling thing to conceptualize leaving the state, right? Mm. Everything I knew, but gosh, I, so it was a, it was a big decision to move, but I knew that I was being called in that direction. Mm. And so it was, it was such a, it felt really brave for me to step out that way, but I wouldn't have done it any any other way, like moving to Kansas City. Uh, I've met my lifelong friends in seminary, like they were oh. all in my wedding, like I had my buddy officiated the wedding and mm. um, from seminary. And so um, it was, it was really trying to navigate where God was calling me next in that pastoral journey and seminary was just the right, the right answer to that. Oh, I love that. Um, so then were you interning pastoring in, while you were in seminary? Yeah, so I was a young adult pastor there um, all through seminary, um, led a college age ministry group with a couple of other um, seminary buddies. Um, and that was that was wonderful, too. I was working uh, at Starbucks and putting myself through school at the same time, too. And um, so interning it was just such a great experience, um, being able to learn things in the classroom that morning and then like lead those small groups. It was about Mm. 75 college kids when we, when we left Um, and just a great tight knit community. Um, They were, we were there for them as they were navigating college and Mm. out graduating from it, but Mm. they were there for us in so many ways of like reminding us where we had just come from Mm. um, and helping us to understand um, their lived experience you know, especially for a Nampa kid who had, I had never had a, like the experiences that I had 
um, in Nampa that I did when I first moved to Kansas City. I'm like, I can't imagine being a college kid here. This mm. is my hometown. What a completely different world, mm. you know? And so it, it really broadened my horizons there too. Oh, that's beautiful. So then from seminary, where did you go from there on your ministry journey? So, you know, I, I was getting towards graduation and I'm sure everybody you know, who's in a grad program can understand like, whoa, what's next? Like, oh, this, this isn't going to be the rest of my life. You know, I can't stay in school forever. Yeah. So I, I just sent out my resume like anyone else uh, did and went to Europe for about 12 days, you know, wanted to see some of the places Ooh. that my master's was in church history. And so I wanted to go to some of those spots uh, mm. it, that were pivotal for the reformation, just really nerdy things. I wanted to do really nerdy things. I love uh, it. And went to Kierkegaard's grave and I cried like a, Aww. like a nerd. <laughs> so, but it was, it was, it was a great experience, but I was considering a few positions. Um, but one came up and mm. my hometown, I didn't even think that I was going back. You know, mm. I thought that we're going to continue to move forward and forward was away from Idaho. Oh, uh, mm. But uh, that really was what what God wanted the church that mm. that I was asked to come and serve at was actually a church that my grandfather pastored in 1952 what? and so it just it just really felt like okay this is where God is calling you next um, you know that place you know the issues it's facing mm. um, and so this is really where I want you to be and so that's where I where I came 20 2013. Uh, wow, like it's like so so full circle for you. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, so was that your first? Were you lead pastoring? Yeah, that, that was my first senior pastor assignment. Okay, so tell me, tell me about being a lead pastor. How was that for you? Wow. So, like you know, I I don't. Th I came in with a lot of hopes for what ministry would look like, and I think seminary is was such a great experience that it almost set you up for false expectations when you mm. step into the pulpit, because mm. you're not just surrounded by people like your colleagues who are so dedicated to ministry, mm. but the churches and the faculty and staff at NTS, yeah. they too are very invested in community engagement and seeing theology come to life, right? Mm. And I think when you're a young pastor and you just graduate from seminary, you're hoping that that's what the local church is going to want to do. They're going to like, they're going to nerd out with right. you. They're going to nerd out. They're want to get in, you know, Eugene Peterson said, they're going to want to get into the trenches and like dig these trenches with you. Mm. And they're going to be so dedicated to that. And it just, it really was like whiplash. You know, mm. I stepped in and all of these expectations of like a CEO, um, or, you know, president leading this, this board was, was put on my shoulders and it was a, it was a big learning curve, but I still had this huge excitement for what God was going to do. You know, that, that this church was so close to the, to the university state university. Mm. And, um, I was just so excited for what possibility that could mean. And mm. it was made very clear to me that I was a, um, kind of a last ditch effort for this church to be, you know, brought back to life. I was the mm. youngest person there by like 25 years. Oh. Um, 
And so I had 11 deaths my first six months oh. in behind the pulpit. And so like it, it, the church was not just spiritually, but like literally dying um, when I was, when, when I, when I got there. Mm. Um, and so I, I spent just like um, Scott Daniel's first 100 days, like that book, I always, you know, recommend it to, to pastor stepping in because yeah. it really is a great resource. And one of the, one of the things that I took away from that was you earn their trust, you know, mm. you, you really learn their language. And that's really what I was trying to commit myself to mm. um, those, those first 100 days in that, in that um, pulpit. But like, I think there was a lot of naivete on, on my end of things. I, mm. I didn't know, like I had just gotten three degrees in theology and philosophy and history. I had no financial training, like none of it was like required learning. And so mm. I, I got some really, um, kind of disturbing wake up calls of what I didn't know in regards to financial training and stuff like that. Mm. And as any pastor of a small church knows, you wear a bazillion hats. You know, I would stepped into a landlord role, never being a landlord mm. and like the church owned a rental and um, managed property and all, all sorts of those things. And on top of, you know, being one of the only staff members, it was me and, uh, and a facility maintenance person when mm. I first stepped on there. And so trying to build a, a youth group with volunteers and, you know, just trying to, and it's an 80 year old building, you know, on top of that. And so it, it had not been uh, uh, stewarded as it should have. I was mm. the 17th pastor of that church's lifetime. And so um, they had gone through a lot of hurt of pastors coming and going and coming and going. And so mm. I really wanted to let them know that I was there for the long haul. Um, and, and so I, I inherited a lot of things that I wasn't prepared for. Mm. And on top of that, my, my being a millennial was, was one of the biggest things that people kept coming back to. Huh. Um, just being like, you know, you'd hear the phrases, I have, I have children or grandchildren your age, you know? And mm. so like, there was, there was some entrenchment, some deep entrenchment there mm. with the, with the board. And th there was this, this kind of trend of speaking beyond what they actually knew um, when it came to finances in, in the board's direction as well, because they had no financial training either. Um, I, I was trying to own how dumb I was. And there was some, some kind of not wanting to let go of some control. And so there wasn't this admittance to how much they didn't know either. And so mm. like, for example, my, my financial compensation was really mismanaged when I first mm. got there. Uh, I was bringing home $19,000, but being taxed on 30,000. Oh, um, and so it was, yeah. Like, and I, I blamed myself for that the first four years, mm. because every time I tried to bring it up, I would get told this is adult life now that, and that was literally the, the response. And so like oh. 2014 came and I had a $10,000 tax bill and I was, I was already going to the red every single month. Um, and so you're a 1099 and I was being charged fair market value for the parsonage that I was living in. And yet oh. the, like I had been an employee of Starbucks 
Like I, I had no idea what a contract employee was, or, you know, I didn't even have the language to, to find out what was going on. Mm. I, so I was told that it was adult life. And so of course I shamed and blamed myself and I was yeah. being shamed for mm. not, you know, managing my, my finances when like I, i I was grasping at straws, like what is happening? And I had yeah. no idea. Ugh. And so if it hadn't have been for the generosity of a, another church member who was on the mm. board and could see it, but didn't want to speak against the power structures that were entrenched there came uh, it was like a, a shady deal <laughs> after a prayer meeting one night came and handed me an envelope and said don't tell anyone about this and turned wow. around and left and it was oh. a check to cover all of my my tax a, a huge bulk of the the mm. tax bill that I had just got footed with mm. but that took at least five years to recover from uh, myself. Um, and so that was, that was one component of how like my lived experience felt really overlooked, um, that I wasn't being taken seriously for some reason. I don't know why, Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't treated as a, as a peer or even a a pastor, really, Mm -hmm. I was treated as kind of this vehicle to bring the church where they wanted it to go, Mm. um, rather than kind of partner together into a particular direction. And so that, that kind of entrenchment was a common theme. We had some incredible things happen in that, you know, during my, my ministry there, saw lives renewed, you know, discipleship happened, all those great things. So I don't Mm. want to be misheard there, but that entrenchment was, was a constant barrier that I would be running up against. Mm. Um, so it was, it was, and I, I still today, I don't know why, Mm. like I, I spent so much energy and emotional, spiritual thought trying to, bring down those barriers in that in that ministry and I really couldn't tell you to this day what those barriers were or why they were put in place um did you reach out to your to your district for advice or yeah and so you know and I was I was there for uh the shifting of administrations you know so I was installed by one administration and kind of oversaw by it by another two years later or so and so Mm -hmm. you know I I reached out to both district uh, leaderships um and that that theme was still still pretty prevalent it felt the same so like Mm -hmm. when I would reach out for the financial thing I was literally drowning and you know, I'm sure every pastor does this. I called my mom and she didn't know, (laughs) like, I just, I hurt for you, son, but I don't know what's going on, you know? And, but at least mom, you know, validates you like (laughs) saying, you know what, this is wrong. Like something's happening to you. I wish I would know what it was, but I would want to walk with you. She, she even offered, can I come down? And like, we can go through receipts and stuff. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to help, but thank you. Like, thank you for, for wanting to do that. Um, mm. but I, I would bring up this, like I asked about, you know, something is going on here. And I, I had that same feeling of being minimized. Like mm. it didn't matter. Like, cause I didn't have the lingo for it. I didn't have the verbiage to put around. I just said, you know, I got hit with a $10,000 tax bill. I don't think that's right. 
Um, and I just got handed this book that said, well, here's some best practices for, you know, church board governance. And, and I honestly would always leave those conversations feeling like, am I not being vulnerable enough? Like, am I mm. not, am I not expressing the pain that I'm, I'm going through? Yeah. Um, because it was not just it was not just the finances, but finances is such a huge part of it. You know, um, my own, my ability to take care of myself and having that in constant flux, um, like even being taxed on 35,000 means that they were only willing to go up to 35,000 in Boise, like Mm. (laughs) where the, where the average pastoral salary for other competing churches in the area was 65,000 or higher. And Mm -hmm. I'm making half of that, you know, for the last, you know, I was in that position for about eight years. And Mm -hmm. so, um, that, that financial instability adds to so much. And then I had to handle a case of incest that happened in, in the church, not, not Mm -hmm. in the church, but they were church members. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, had to walk through the legality of that whole situation. Mm. And that was my second year, you know, as a senior pastor. And so, so many of the hardships of ministry trying to, you know, remodel a building and get it to the, to the level where we could, you know, minister to all age levels of ministry from young babies to, you know, elderly adults. Um, I could only minister to the, to the adults and the elderly that were there. And so kids, you know, families with young kids would come and go and we'd just Mm. see them, you know, kind of revolving. And it wasn't until I was able to bring on some staff along the way that I could at least address maybe teens or maybe children and young families. Um, But we were, then we just reached capacity and that's as far as that we could take the, take the church. Mm. Um, And so whenever I'd bring try to bring up these these issues it it really felt like the i would they would be kind always they would be you know they would always speak to me trying to understand Mm. but at the end of every conversation the responsibility um was put on back on me to make it to make it work to figure it out to figure it all out Mm. and and then my lived experience, the pain that I was going through was like deeply minimized. Mm. And it got to such a bad place that in 2016, I, uh, I, I went to bed and I had, um, suicidal ideation for the first time. Like Mm. I am not, I, I am drowning. I can't handle this anymore. And I think what compounded it all was that I was not being listened to, you know, I just felt so alone and isolated. Mm. And I was a single pastor at this time. I, you know, just had my dog and so I'd go home trying to figure this out. And I'd like work late into the, to the wee hours of the morning, just like trying to see if I had done something wrong or left a stone unturned, trying to figure this all out. Mm. Whenever I asked for help, it just felt really minimized and shifted back onto my shoulders. Mm. And so I had like, I woke up in the middle of the night under this extreme stress thinking, I can't, I can't live this way anymore. Mm. And I had for the first time thinking of taking action against my own life. Mm. Um, 
and it scared me to such an extent that I called a doctor the, the next morning. I, because of my dog, actually, I didn't, I didn't have that decision. She came up, she's a 75 pound boxer. And I got up to go into the bathroom to make a plan to take action against myself. And she just crawled up onto my chest and like oh. put her full weight right there. Mm. Um, and I, I'm not really an indoor pet person, but I'm very much a Ripley person because she, <laughs> in, in so many ways, she had been there through those, those moments mm. when like no one else really saw me on a day-to-day basis. And so she really sensed that I was going through something significant. And, mm. um, so because of her, I, I then, it scared me so much that I called my doctor and, and a therapist the next morning yeah. within a week, I was diagnosed with PTSD um, mm. from some things that I had experienced as a child, but mm. also that was compounded by what I was going through now. I went through six months of EMDR therapy. Wow. Um, and like the, and the therapist and the doctor just consistently, and I was on medication. I'd never really taken, I was on two different forms of uh, medication for my anxiety and depression. Yeah. I'd never you know, medicated to that extent. Mm. Um, and so it was everything that I could do to really try to hold things, hold things together. And so I got to the point of like, I need to share this with district leadership. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, wanted to, I, I scheduled a breakfast meeting and I, I was trying to explain some of like the, the things that I'd gone through with the finances, the, the case of incest and a couple of other things to just build up to the reality that I had been diagnosed. And I was, I was cut off and said, yeah, that sounds like what taking in a first church sounds like. Oh no. And, and like, I, it felt very clear that if I were to share a diagnosis on top of that, I would be heard as complaining. Yeah. I would be heard as whining, you know, mm. and all of those other kind of stereotypes that I had heard in my ministry up to that point flooded mm. in my ears about oh. millennials being lazy or not wanting to take responsibility. Mm. Um, and so it, it really made me feel like I wasn't safe to share those things those things that I was just diagnosed with, you know, PTSD and anxiety, and I'm in therapy, paying out of pocket, mind you, on top of trying to recover, you know, from Mm. this financial hole that I was just thrown into. Mm. Um, And so it was that moment forward, that was a real pivotal moment for me that I had attempted in various ways to try to express what I was going through, but consistently felt like I, it was minimized. My lived experience was not being taken seriously. I actually started breaking down at district meetings about church planting because it felt like I'm in this old dying church and it feels like we're just talking about church planting when we have pastors who are literally, literally dying in the trenches and their churches are hemorrhaging people Mm. and we're looking at, at planting churches. And so Mm. I got to the point to where I had to really step out of some district leadership that I was in Mm. to try to be as, um, protective of my own mental health um, and my own well being. Um, and, so like it was after that moment that was a really pivotal shift for me that I was mm. not really safe to 
to express what was what was happening. Wow, thank you for for sharing that. So I guess I want to kind of ask you the beginning of the next story that we're trying to tell, which is um, when was the first time that it occurred to you that you might not end up staying in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, you know, I I have to be honest, I never thought that. Mm. Like I had, I never got to the point where I may never be in the Church of the Nazarene. Mm. Um, I knew that I couldn't stay in my current situation. Yeah. But I was just talking to another dear friend of mine about this recently. And I was really under the impression that if ministry failed, it was my fault. Mm. Um, I, I needed to commit to my ministry to see it in a healthy position before I could even think about leaving. Mm. Um, and if I didn't, then that, that legacy of a failed church would be on my track record. Mm -hmm. It would follow me everywhere. And mm -hmm. so I, I not only felt stuck because I wasn't being heard in my leadership position, but I felt stuck because it felt like the integrity and the, the success of this local church was completely up to me. And mm -hmm. if I didn't do anything, my career could be in jeopardy. You know, mm -hmm. my, my longevity with the church of the Nazarene could be in, in question. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I never, it wasn't even an inkling to me, you know, to question my, my allegiance to the church of the Nazarene or a, a, a thought that I would eventually not be in ministry in the church of the Nazarene. Mm -hmm. It was more central to what do I do in this context? That's literally ripping my life apart. Um, and it feels so helpless to, to, to round the corner or come up over, uh, these challenges that I continue to face by myself, Ugh. um, and my counselor and my doctor and my family, um, eventually Rebecca, even, you know, they were all starting to say, this is tear, like tearing your mental health apart yeah. and you're physically becoming unhealthy. Mm. Like so much was going on in my own life be as a byproduct of that. And so that's when those questions kind of, that's the nature that those questions really took mm. is how can I get out of this situation and still, still be following the call that I, that I felt called to, you know, I felt called to this church. I felt called to the church of the Nazarene. I felt responsible, <laughs> so deeply responsible. Mm. Um, and yet it felt like in many conversations, I was really the only one taking that responsibility seriously I wanted to work together mm. but it felt like I was being told it's really up to you you know mm. you really need to make this this happen mm. so help me understand the the pivot then the the from the meeting with this district leadership and you mm -hmm. can't even talk about your mental health because it's not a safe space yeah how do you, how do you get from there to, to kind of where you are now? Tell that story for me. Sure. Okay. So, um, we, the church, I, after some, uh, really intentional conversations with, with the board and mm. the last, I would say, so I was there for a total of eight years, the last two and a half years, I had incredible, 
uh, a staff person um, and a great board that was mm-hmm. like really intentional about wanting to see this church flourish. Mm-hmm. However, that board had been church members beforehand. And you know, the old saying that 10% of the church does 90% of the work. Sure. And they had done like 110% of the work, mm-hmm. you know, making sure we had a podcast, streaming services, all of those things. So that board was just ragged, just mm-hmm. run ragged, as ragged as I was, right? Mm-hmm. And so was my my st- my staff person. And did that have a lot to do with the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. So we in at the beginning of 2020, we were already trying to navigate um, possibly selling the building because the building was just, we'd found black mold, we'd found, mm. um, we'd done all the possible renovations that we could, and yet there was a crack in the foundation, and like the, they had done additions throughout the, the life of the church, and it was so hodgepodgey um, that a a guest would just get lost, like trying to find their way around. There wasn't a place for youth anymore Mm. um, because the upstairs was where the asbestos was and there was mold in the, in the tower and and things Mm. like that. And so we, I had just gotten to the point of saying, we have to find, if we want this church to survive, we can't be so attached to a building. And so we were having those conversations, trying to move forward and then the pandemic happened mm. <laughs> and, you know, the whole reckoning with racial uh, justice happened and, mm. and, uh, and so you were we a very were... prophetic voice in, in our denomination, but like also during the pandemic, I feel like through oh. all of these conversations, I feel like you're really trying to speak life into these conversations, even uh, outside your church, your church context. Yeah. I, I felt really. I felt really called in the midst of that, that, that the culture needs to see at at least clergy, if not fellow Christians, you know, trying to lead the way with, with following the spirit, like, where is the spirit leading us in the midst of this? And how can we not be divisive, but really Mm. try to shine light where there is darkness right now? Mm. Um, And I I honestly think that also added a, a level of, uh, backlash from from district leadership as well mm. that the the kind of the things that I was saying trying to speak to but always always trying to be pastoral you know yeah. some other other peers that I really admire like these were some of my peers that I really admired how they were going through mm. these were people that I was like okay what are they doing <laughs> And, and how can I speak in my context, yeah. even on a social media platform and try, try to lead in a similar direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the pandemic hit, we were all on online, everybody's ragged. And so I was just bringing up any possible options. There was a new church plant, Nazarene church plant that was happening. I proposed that we merge with them, mm-hmm. you know, and I become a discipleship pastor with this founding pastor mm-hmm. and um, my church kind of lays low. We get our bearings, uh, be a part of this exciting new movement, and then mm. maybe eventually, you know, break away again and plant, be a church plant from that church plant, you know. Mm. But we would have a new building and we would be 
partnering with the the funds that was being allocated for this church plant you know mm-hmm. and we could really feed life to each other and yeah there were so many barriers against that idea like mm-hmm. the this there was this hesitancy to lose uh, a church building or, or property or um, the designation of another church if we were to be absorbed one church would be lost you know and so there was resistance in doing that when mm. when like I just felt like I wanted to jump up and down like haven't you been hearing me the last eight years that if we try to hold on to this place this piece of property the church is gonna die yeah and you're gonna have to sell it and there won't be a, a, a church so mm. are we wanting the church body to survive and thrive mm-hmm. or, or are we wanting the numbers and the mm. designation of the church like the institution aspect of it to survive mm. um and so it just constantly it felt like the institution was placed over the people mm. it prioritized so much over the people even the clergy that were trying to navigate these situations and so proposal after proposal after proposal I kept trying to bring up and uh it just barrier after barrier after barrier um and so what finally brought me to the point was just I was so desperate after all of these no's that in the midst of that a local United Methodist Church reached out to me and Mm -hmm. had some connections in the Nazarene world like Methodists and Nazarenes do you know Mm -hmm. um and said you know we we think you might be looking for a, a new position. Um, we have a campus that just was made available. Um, we think you would be a great fit for it. Would you consider doing that? Mm. And the first thing that came into my head was special assignment. Mm. Like it's right here, you know, in my hometown. Yeah. Uh, my wife's business is here that she built from the ground up. Like mm. she has been like, I call her a boss babe because she's just like so industrious at what she does, um, has built a huge client base. And so like, there's no way that we could move. She would have to start completely over somewhere else. Right? Mm. And so like, I had even thought there's some other churches open on, on the district. There are some other churches open out of state, mm. but none of that worked with yeah. both of our families are in town. We want to start a family together. Her business is here. We yeah. really do have to stay local. Yeah. Again, my lived experience, like mm. the the needs that would that I was really asking to be taken seriously. Mm. And so I had another meeting with district leadership. Of course, every single meeting, and I don't know if district leadership was aware of this, but like every single meeting, like. It, <laughs> someone who suffers from anxiety, like I would have a panic attack every single time Mm. that I would have a meeting with, with the person that's over me, you know, or really even fellow colleagues who were, you know, who seemed to have more prestige. Mm. I I would also like, I could feel the anxiety just fill my body Mm. because I I was, I was honestly so afraid of being gaslit again. Mm. Um, I was afraid of being minimized again. I was afraid of like, I was just in constant fear of what target might be put on my back because of what I just posted online or, or what I had maybe had said incorrectly or something. I I just felt like I was walking on eggshells. Mm. And so that meeting came again. I had just gone through a panic attack. 
you know, sitting in my office and I never, I, I, I'm always really trying to be intentional with my words. So I was like, okay, I don't want to make a request or a demand. I want to explore special assignment. So I use that phrase. I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. the best phrase that I could possibly use to maybe have this, you know, taken seriously. And so Mm -hmm. explain the situation. And I said, what would be the possibility of exploring special assignment? Mm. And with this particular church, United Methodist Church, the senior pastor, I would be pastoring one campus. The senior pastor has been very vocal on local news channels about LGBT affirmation, officiates same gendered weddings, mm. um, is, is, is very open about that even though the UMC officially is Mm -hmm. not right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this specific senior pastor feels like it is his mission to push the envelope for that cause. Mm -hmm. I would be pastoring a campus of that, that church. And so they made it very clear to me. And, And my understanding of the manual is that when an ordained elder makes a request, it has to go through the proper channels of the district advisory board, have it be approved. Um, and then we could have the conversation of why it was rejected or mm-hmm. denied, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was told immediately that if I accepted this position, my credentials would be taken. Oh. Um, and like, it was just a sh- like a, a shock to me that like, and. I just wish like all of the thoughts and feelings that I had could be put on a projector on the wall in that moment. It's just yeah. like, I had been a licensed pastor for almost 14 years at this point. Mm. I, I had, I have the educational debt to show how committed I've been to trying to check all the boxes. Mm. I came into that parish, that church, not ordained, even though I had served so many years, but mm. was told by the district that until I had three years consecutive full time, oh. even though I had the equivalent of that, like three times over, I had to serve three consecutive full, uh, full-time years before I could even be considered to be ordained. And I had two master's degrees and so many years of experience, right? Mm. And so after all of that, still trying to have my lived experience being taken seriously, like my thought was, have I not earned enough? Mm. Like it, it feels like this again, like the metric of not losing a church and make the right decision to like see the vitality of the church going forward. It felt like the metric of a pastor being on special assignment at an affirming church was more important than keeping a pastor mm. than like seeing a pastor be healthy and like, take a good, you know, career step in their, in their life where they were suffering currently. Mm, Yeah. Um, and so it was just, it was so deeply hurtful in that moment. And then I was confused again on if special assignment was approved, I would still be under the responsibility of the church of the Nazarene. And so even, and the UMC was completely in agreement with that. Mm. the bishop was and so I would be ministering under the authority of the church of the Nazarene as a church as a Nazarene pastor Mm. and and still maintaining my ministry as a Nazarene pastor right and so that 
portion of it didn't make sense either. Like, mm. why, why would that be a question if I was still kind of answering to the Church of the Nazarene in this new ministry assignment? Mm. So and you so, didn't have the opportunity to even like apply. I don't know if it's an application, but like no. apply for a special assignment. No, there was no there was no provision made for that. Mm. Um, like I again, it was made to be my decision like what you choose to do from here is really pivotal. Mm. So you have this option. You can either continue to see your current ministry assignment out, maybe explore some other churches that were not in the area. Mm. Um, and, or take this position and lose your credentials. Mm. Um, and so that's what choice I felt like I had. Like there Ugh. was no desire to walk with me. Like or, or anything like that. And, and, you know, it, the hurt just got worse from there where, you know, of course I, I eventually took the position because I knew it was the right, right call for me, Mm. my wife, my family, those sorts of things. And they had a district advisory board meeting and my case was being discussed. I heard through the channels. Mm. And so I requested the minutes from that district advisory board meeting Mm. and was told that uh, they gave me the minutes, but uh, told me that I don't know how helpful it's going to be. We went into executive session when we discussed your case. Mm. And so that whole area where they talked about, I don't even know what was said. Mm. It's just, it's redacted. That's mm. not part of the board minutes at all. You don't so even know I, how your how your situation was presented. No, no, I don't know how my situation was presented. I don't know how my reputation was discussed mm. um, or, or what was told as my reasons for leaving. Like, because mm. after I left, I heard, you know, as you do in church circles, you hear all of these rumors, like he didn't leave well. Um, he left for this reason. Mm. Um, you know, so many rumors still that I will hear through back channels of people that Mm. like, this is why you left. It's almost as if my story has taken on a life of its own that is not rooted in what actually happened. Mm. And so, and on top of that, like my credential was framed, you know, in my office and the, it was, made very clear to me after I accepted that I had to turn in that piece of paper. Like there was this whole procedure around doing that. And I was, I was literally in shock (laughs) from, from all that had happened. I was feeling very deeply traumatized to be honest after everything that had happened. Um, my wife and I were newly married in at the beginning of 2020, February 8th. Um, and so, like we were trying to move into a new house and like get all of uh, life just in a row um, and then getting ready to take this new assignment. And so my last day was May 31st. My first Sunday would have been July 4th. And so I made the request. I said, look, like I had spent so long, so many hours pursuing this credential. Like I just need a month to like come to grips with this. Like we had this sacred ceremony around being ordained by the church. Mm. And now I'm just going to hand it to you in some restaurant. 
you know, like, like the texts would be, I'm in, let me know if I can stop by and receive your credential. Mm. And it just, it felt so humiliating. Like oh. it really felt like I was being dishonorably discharged oh. um, for, for like, and, and for so many reasons, it just felt so hurtful. And so to that request, it was no. I, I hope that you can appreciate that I need to do my job was yeah. the response. Like I was asking for a month, like yeah. our, our district assembly takes place in April in my mind of how the polity works. There's no need for a credential, at least until the end of the year, yeah. you know, six months before assembly even. And I was just asking for a month mm. to come to grips with what was happening. So again, even after everything had happened and I had made the decision to move again, my lived experience was not being taken seriously. Mm. Um, and so I remember one day, like, I don't think anyone knows what it's like, except for if you're an ordained pastor, but like to take that piece of paper that signified, and by the way, like, I thought God gave ordination. Like, I, I don't understand this idea of taking it, you know, back and having it filed or whatever. Mm. But like the act of putting it in a manila envelope and just mailing, because I didn't, I, that was like my little act of standing up for myself and saying, I'm not going to go to this meeting that I don't feel like I'm going to be heard or validated or listened to. Yeah. And, and hand this over something that I had given my life's blood for. Mm. And so I made a photocopy of it so that I could have it on my own file. Mm. After the UMC transferred as much as they could over, they acknowledged my ordination. They brought me in as clergy, like my bishop and my UMC district superintendent moved heaven and earth mm. to advocate for me. Yeah. Um, and I mailed it in. Mm. and I got a text thank you for it and that's been about it from the Church of the Nazarene since that point um, and so I like I'm just still grappling with how to make sense of it all what's the right response for me to do? I was, I took count after I accepted my position and took that month off. And I was number 20 of my colleagues, Nazarene colleagues that had left under similar circumstances. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm still at a, a stage of grieving, trying to process all of these wounds and still wondering how best to navigate this yeah because i the church of the nazarene there's so many people that had done so many things that showed me jesus mm. and i was so committed to that call and that ministry and you know now i'm in this position that i never had planned to be mm. but god is in it i know yeah. i'm exactly where i'm supposed to be and mm. in more, in many ways, I have more ownership over who I am as a pastor now, mm. because I said yes to where God was leading me. Mm. Um, and 
that the, this local church is doing some incredible things that I deeply believe in, in the mm. Boise area. And I am being healed mm. in, in so many ways by the movement of God here. Mm. But the way that this all happened, it, it felt like, it felt like holiness wasn't a priority. Mm. Like if, if, if you need someone to not have their credential anymore or what have you, if there's there a need for a, a clergy person to leave, how do we handle it with holiness? Yeah. And I think that's been a huge question for me um, of as to, I just, I don't know why. Mm. I don't know why things were handled these ways the last eight years as a senior pastor mm. um trying to give full commitment to the call that god had placed on them then mm. thank you thank you for telling that story i know that i that's really hard. appreciate you listening yeah um give me give me just a few minutes tell me uh, about your life and ministry since then what's about, what what has god been doing in, in you and and uh, with you in ministry since you left yeah so like this this church has uh, a huge love for uh the community of boise mm. we were able to uh give 16,000 pounds of food that we grew ourselves out of oh, our garden to right? to the community like a huge level it. yeah huge amount of volunteers um mm. that made that happen we had over a thousand pumpkins that we just <laughs> let kids run wild and like paint the pumpkins and take oh. them home you know um and we were able to do that our food pantry is open every monday nights and mm. it's a huge ministry to the refugee families that are right Ooh. across the street wow. um about 250 families every month uh cycle wow. through our, our food pantry and so just mm. really, really just blown away by the hospitality of this campus. Yeah. Um, and then we're able to partner with the downtown campus quite a bit for larger endeavors, like confronting the needs of homelessness in the area. Um, we've been able to bring in some speakers, including Nazarene speakers on uh, racial, uh, talking about racial injustice. And mm. um, be, I've just been seeing God move in such a uh, pivotal ways of seeing how the Holy Spirit is really at work in our local communities mm. and has been opening doors of connection uh, for us to, to really participate with that. Mm. Um, and so the, the, the people here are just so kind and warm and loving and has welcomed this. We have a huge banner above our doors that say all really means all, all mm. means all. Mm. And uh, I, uh, you know this you've worn clerical collars in your ministry yep and there's always this like tension like okay is somebody going to complain about it this time you know mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. is it you know what sort of feedback am i getting is going to be positive or whatever i had a very traditional funeral and methodists dress up way more than <laughs> nazarenes do nice. often right and so like they have stoles and robes and i'd never preached in one before in my life mm. so i was trying to be traditional and right after the funeral service we were at the reception and I had my collar on my stole and a lifelong Methodist at this campus came up to me and she's like you know I've never seen a Methodist wear a collar before and I'm like uh-oh here it comes you know and then she put her hand on my shoulder and she said but you know what that sign says all means all and that counts for our pastors too 
Uh, I um, I'm, cr- I'm literally, literally crying. started weeping. Oh, Ben. That was like week number two. <laughs> that counts for our pastors too. <sighs> and this community has lived into that. Like we've had disagreements, we've had, you know, struggles, but it, the the nature of the conversation is so, di- I feel accepted and affirmed as the, as the pastor I've been called to be. Um, oh, that actually leads perfect into my next question because, um, you know, part of my kind of reflection questions at the end, I want to ask you like, how might we, and I guess I'm talking about now the church of the Nazarene, um, how might we have made um a more hospitable place for you as a as a pastor mm. in your ministry among us i i i have just in thinking about these things i think my heart just keeps going back to a willingness to listen i think that would heal a whole host of issues that we're seeing right now mm. i i can't help but feel at least in my own context how much fear and control mm. have shaped the nature of conversations mm. rather than this authentic listening and desiring to partner with clergy mm. um, and understanding like economic needs are so different for millennial pastors than they are, you know, previous generations, like this context of ministry is rapidly changing and is so different from previous generations of clergy that like 90% of all we're talking about is saying, this is different than the way the church has done things before the Mm. world is rapidly changing and we want to confront these things together. Mm. But whenever we bring up our own lived experience, like I can't support myself And maybe I'm a single pastor for a lot longer because I feel like I can't even support myself and Mm. would be irresponsible to even bring in a family, like to try Mm. to, to build a family. And so this desire to listen and understand how different the context of, of ministry is for, for millennials and Mm. really taking our lived experience seriously. Um, Like you can't, you can't over like express how dehumanizing it is to be made to feel like your lived experience doesn't matter. Yeah. And that it's that uh, my call to be a pastor is more important than my own well-being. Mm. It like it shouldn't be an either or. It's mm. like God calls whole persons into ministry to make and heal and renew whole persons, right? Because mm. healed people heal people mm. and, and, it, and hurt people hurt other people. And so it's just like, if we're bringing in pastors and just kind of dropping them into these contexts, like right out of seminary, you know, a, a, another aspect of preparation, I think would just be making financial education mandatory, for for theological education and make theological education free Mm. so like one you're not graduating with enormous amounts of debt like all of my friends have um and i i will say this until i'm blue in the face if you ever question a millennial's dedication to the denomination look at their income to debt ratio like that's how committed we are 
to be pastors Mm. and then give them the financial training to navigate Mm. a a board. If you're expecting them to step in as the leader of a board, give them the training, the financial education uh, to, to navigate that well. And then, and then really listen all along the way that their context is different. They are facing challenges that previous generations of clergy never had to face, just like that previous generation of clergy faced challenges that the previous one, like their predecessors right. didn't, yeah, right? That's absolutely so it's, right. It's just taking the, the cycles of history seriously. Yeah. That, that the things that we're having to deal with on the front lines of ministry has a different impact on us as persons. Mm. And we are trying to confront those things. And we thought that going through this theological education, we are going to be able to face that in unity Mm. only to have the whiplash of being told this is up to you Mm. and you alone to make Mm. this ministry successful and whatever definition of success, you know, that might mean. They're definitely like, right, right. Exactly. The whatever ambiguous definition of success that particular context might mean. Mm. Um, And so really, I think that's what would have just changed the nature of my situation was Mm. to be taken seriously, to, to really feel like I was welcome Mm. at, at the table um, and be seen as a peer in ministry. And then say like, when I, and to not be afraid to say, I've been diagnosed with PTSD, you know, to actually be real with what's happening in my own personal life that has a direct impact on my ministry. Mm. Because I know that I can look back and say, I really was trying to navigate these waters with integrity. Mm. And I had a a very close mentor tell me that it feels like in this context, that when you are vulnerable and, and open about those things as a senior pastor, it's like blood in the water. Um, And that vulnerability is seen as a weakness rather than a strength in leadership. Mm. And I've always been convinced, you know, reading Brene Brown, especially that vulnerability is really such an admirable trait in a leader Um, that like this desire to work together and saying, this is where I'm weak. Mm. I need to bring other people into where I am weak so that we can because the people that we're ministering to is the real goal here. Mm. It's not so that my ministry is successful or, or what have you. Um, And so I don't know if that's like a clear cut answer, but I I feel like a lot of those things, if they were different, listen to financial education and taking my, my personal experience seriously, it, it would have changed dramatically Mm. um, my, my journey. Mm. Um, what words of wisdom or encouragement would you, would you have for millennial clergy that are um, still in the church of Nazarene? Um, you know, I, I feel like I talk to, um, friends who are in similar situations where they feel stuck. And I just, I think I want this to echo in their ears over and over and over again, that their lived experience really does matter. Like you are not going crazy. Like your, your experience is real and it really does matter. And to find people to speak to that will take that seriously, that will believe your lived experience. And if you can't find someone protect that, 
Mm. And, and, and even if you have to make a, a difficult decision for you and your family, advocate for yourself. Mm. Don't, don't feel like you have to be a long suffering servant mm. because at the end of the day, it's, it's a very toxic way to be treated, mm. um, to have your, your lived experience being minimized. And so one, it's real and every context is different. Every situation is different. So like my story is going to be different than someone else's, yep. but, but advocate for yourself and, and know that you are worth being advocated for mm. and that even pastors need a community that cares for them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I found comfort and strength in, in peers from ministry that if it wasn't for them, I don't know if I would have survived this, this journey. And they're still mm. pivotal friends to this day. Yeah. And so find those people that you can listen to. There's nothing wrong with counseling or therapy. Um, and there is something wrong with not being paid enough to afford it. Mm. <laughs> and so a lot of the things that you may be blaming yourself for is actually the result of the institution being placed over you more mm. important than you. Mm. Um, and you do not need to be the person that climbs up on the cross and dies for your ministry. Jesus already did that. <laughs> So you don't need to be the sacrificial lamb, like advocate for yourself, protect yourself, have intentional conversations and, and do your best to, to make sure that your well-being is taken care of. Mm. It's beautiful. Um, anything else that you would want people to know about this, this journey? Any, any last words? Yeah. Um, I, I think that in the, in in the years to come, we're going to be reflecting on how, because I really do believe that we're in the midst of a reformation, at least in America, if not globally for the church. Mm. And there is just like with the Protestant reformation, there's a lot of casualties as the church shifts one direction or the other. Mm. And, and that has been a huge source of hope to me that even if I was you know, a, a casualty to what the church is trying to maintain as their identity in the world, right? Um, or to what they're trying to correct and things like that, that it, at the end of the day, like, I really did the best that I could. Um, and it's, it takes a lot of the blame off your shoulders, mm -hmm. when you feel like maybe there wasn't anything that I could do to not be a casualty of of what the church is trying to protect itself against or yeah. what it's trying to be in the world because every church is going through it and so i think that would be a the final word is that don't the, the church systemically is going through growing pains and mm. reformation mm. and we're all feeling that deeply and so mm. do your best to not blame yourself for the things that you're the 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 confrontation that you're seeing in front of you. Mm. That's yeah, that's great. That's such a good perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Um, well, thank you for your bravery and in, in being vulnerable to tell this story and for your, for your time. I really appreciate yeah. it. I really appreciate the work you're doing, Britt. Thank you so much. <laughs>
since we love millennials so much on this podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to promote our fellow millennial authors. Here's one now. I don't know when it happened, but at some point I decided I was no longer willing to lie about what hurts. My book, Signs of Life, is my witness of both my hurts and startling, unsettling, unexpected resurrection. This book is an honest telling of my journey with chronic mental health challenges, significant church hurt, and other wounds, and serves as my testimony to the dogged commitment of God to resurrection. You can grab a copy at a local bookstore or Barnes and Noble or Amazon. There are paperback, Kindle, or audiobook versions available. Find a free study guide for small group discussion at stephanielobdell.com. Support this author and our podcast by clicking the link in the description. Thank you. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Britt Bullerjack. Our editor is Caden Barksdale. And original music was done by Andrew Jones. This podcast is part of the Millennial Pastor Podcasting Network. For more podcasts like it, please visit themillennialpastor.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can join us on the next episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.